Welcome to the Thrive Vineyard Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our special guest speaker. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit thrivevineyard.com. Happy New Year. So, so how many of you have adopted, have ever adopted the saying, no news is good news? It's a snappy saying, right? It's nonchalant, but it's just cynical enough to be kind of a cool thing to say. But do you want a shock for the new year? No, no news is not good news. It's not. When it comes down to it, I think we can all agree. Good news is not merely an absence of bad news. It's not a merely. Who says, that's merely good news? That would be to treat it as a nothing. Good news is a something. And news itself carries weight. Who doesn't hate being the bearer of bad news? But even more, who doesn't love being the bearer of good news? So I have a little bitty story. When um, I asked Mandy Blackburn to marry me in December of 2008, and then she said, yes, I bore good news. We did. The good news that is the fact that we're going to be married We called up our friends and our family, even though it was late at night, and we spoke to them through tears of joy. A late night phone call is an important phone call. It's a rousing gesture of news that has to be heard. We couldn't contain it. The news was so good that it had emboldened us. The news itself made us bold. Who doesn't love to be the bearer of good news? You see, it makes us confident because it becomes our very confidence. As believers and as Christians, we, of course, are bearers of the best of good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our good news is worth sharing, and we all know it. We all know it, but do we live as if we know it? We can be confident when our good news becomes our confidence. We can be confident in our good news when our good news becomes our confidence. But what if it's not? I mean... Shouldn't that confidence have always been there if my faith is real? A struggle of my own is over-intellectualizing. Even that term sounds overly intellectual. (laughs) Um, I like the idea. I mean, this is my own human nature, but I like the idea that the gospel is laid out to others as something intuitive and something logical and something that cannot be refuted as if it's a mathematical proof. But but the problem with such an attitude is I get fearful about expressing my faith in Jesus. I freeze up thinking there might be a hole in my argument. Somebody listening might see right through me because 
I'm just not smart enough to do justice to the truth of the God of the universe. So um, something I used to do several years ago, um, this is a terrible idea, by the way, but I would reply to contentious Facebook posts of a friend of a friend, you know, and in one particular instance, somebody had made a post about how they think hell is unfair and stupid, and I took exception to it, and I was like, you know, uh, I'm going to put a, I'm going to give her a C.S. Lewis quote. And really quickly, she replied, that doesn't even sound like it has a biblical basis. And, you know, the problem was, in this particular quote, I'm not sure she was wrong. Um, So I pretty quickly retreated from that conversation I probably never should have engaged in, or at least should not have engaged in in that manner. You see, there's that attitude of me thinking that I needed to be clever enough to make God's truth really stick, to make it effective, as if God needed the help. And for you, it might not be like that. Uh, You might not be a recovering pseudo-intellectual like me. Um, But what does hold you back? When the good news we bear is so good. Why hasn't the gospel become your confidence? Don't you care about the good news of Jesus Christ? Of course you do. So what's going on? By the way, I'm not necessarily talking about uh, presenting the four spiritual laws to every stranger you sit beside, although that might be your gifting and calling. It might be that very thing. But I'm not talking about that. I'm referring more to those times you know the heart of the gospel in word or in deed can answer to the situation like nothing else can. And it's too hard to get yourself to do anything. So why hasn't the gospel become your confidence? Maybe it's more fair to say, in what ways is it not yet your confidence? What's at the root of your own hesitation? at your own timidity. It could be your past um, making you feel unfit for shining Jesus' light. It could be um, in an inherently secular setting like work, your deep need for approval, and you've never been out of your comfort zone enough to get out of it now. It could be that You have a sense of hypocrisy in some area of your life. And maybe you're on the other side of that. Maybe you've been burned by a Christian and you found them to be a hypocrite. Maybe you're not so sure the good news is good enough to share because you don't actually feel so changed by it yourself. And this morning, you're having your doubts. It could be so many things. Um... But I want you all to see what Paul does here in Athens in this amazing account that is found in Acts chapter 17. Because there's something here to inspire us out of our timidity. We can go ahead and take a moment. I don't put all the verses on the slides here, so there are Bibles in front of you, or if you want to pull it up on your device, um, we're looking at Acts chapter 17, verse 16, starting there, 17, 16. And while you're getting there, let me tell you, I have 
I've always been fascinated by this passage. Paul is fleeing from mob violence and the threat of imprisonment yet again. Um, First from Thessalonica and then from Berea. This is in northern Greece. And now he's waiting on uh, Timothy and Silas to meet up with him down south in Athens. He's beat them there. He's waiting for them. So here in this passage, we have the most zealous Jewish Pharisee the world has ever known who became the most zealous Christian the world has ever known. And here we find him speaking to the most sophisticated pagans the world has ever known, to Greek philosophers. (laughs) He's sharing the good news to the most critical audience you can possibly imagine, and yet he is confident. He is confident. Okay, again, Acts 17, we're looking at verses 16 through 34. And I I have three points I really want to drive home. We can tell that Paul's good news has become his confidence because, one, he has zeal for God and love for his neighbor that dictates his actions. Two, he knows his audience. And three, he finds common ground to engage his audience into action. Again, he has zeal for God and love for his neighbor that dictates his actions. He knows his audience and he finds common ground with them to engage them into a call to action. In this next slide here, let's see how his zeal for God and love for his neighbor dictates his actions. Um, here I read out of the common English Bible, um, regardless of your translation, you'll be able to follow. Verse 16 says, While Paul waited for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to find that the city was flooded with idols. He began to interact with the Jews and Gentile God-worshippers in the synagogue. He also addressed whoever happened to be in the marketplace each day. So he not only interacted as he customarily did when he traveled around in the synagogues to the Jews and the the God-fearing Gentiles who would attend synagogue, but he was also in the marketplace, that is, in the public square of Athens, where things are talked about among all kinds of people. And why did he do that too? It's because of the idolatry. He was upset and offended by it. He knows wrong when he sees it and he can't stand it. His zeal, his passion for God and his love, his love for his Athenian neighbor dictates his actions here. And as a result, just to cover the next couple of verses briefly, those dominant philosophers of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they took interest in Paul. Their opinions vary a little bit. Some of them are saying, come on, is he for real? What is he talking about? And others have a slightly different tone and they say, his sayings and his gods are foreign to us. Because you see the verses say here, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So here with the the Areopagus or the council at Mars Hill, we have what might have been a formal hearing in times past because that council traditionally served as the Athenian judges to be on the lookout for what they called heralds of foreign gods. 
among many other things. They did murder cases and stuff too. But here it seems more likely that they're just using their position to satisfy their casual curiosity. They're, they're in effect saying, let's compel him to explain himself to us. It could be fun to hear about. It could be a real novelty. And we owe it to ourselves and our state to force his hand. Okay. So to see about the next two things, how he knows his audience and how he finds common ground to engage them to action. I want us to try something. Maybe it's a little bit different. And I want you to take a look at this slide that just came up. It's a very old and uh, very good artistic representation of the exact passage of scripture I'm about to read to you. I want you to bear with me. It's, I don't know, two minutes of reading. And while I read it, keep your eyes on the slide and look at Paul and look at the individual's varying reactions to him. Um, as we hear Paul's speech, here it is. Paul stood up in the middle of the council on Mars Hill and said, people of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. As I was walking through town and carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands, nor is God served by human hands, as though he needed something, since he is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God made the nations so they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God, we live, move, and exist, as some of your own poets said. We are his offspring. Therefore, as God's offspring, we have no need to imagine that the divine being is like a gold, silver, or stone image made by human skill and thought. God overlooks ignorance of these things in times past, but now directs everyone everywhere to change their hearts and lives. This is because God has set a day when he intends to judge the world justly by a man he has appointed. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So here Paul knows his audience. He said, people of Athens, I see you're very religious in every way. Carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar to an unknown God. What you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. See how he knows his audience? He observes their ways, and using something they know, reveals something they don't. It's like he's saying, my foreign gods are not foreign after all. He's just the unknown God you yourselves acknowledge. I know something you don't know, or someone. He starts with and then expounds upon something that is already there. 
the unknown God. Here's verse 24 again. God who made everything is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands. Nor is God served by human hands as though he needed something. Since he's the one who gives. From one he created everyone. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. So in these three verses, 24, 25, 26, he's got three distinct points. God is creator and sovereign of all. He is maker of places, not in need of a place. He is provider, not in need of provision. And he's the author of all humanity and its limits. Interestingly, Paul is appealing to what would actually have been perfectly reasonable to these philosophers. As Epicureans and Stoics, they had a natural theology or you know thoughts on the nature of God that would have been very much in line with these three points. And I really wish I could go into the beliefs of these philosophers, these dominant schools, because it's so interesting. It's interesting stuff. Like Epicureans say that death is the end. Death is the end. And Stoics, they're pantheistic. They basically, they basically believed in the force, like in Star Wars. They like literally believe that. Um, anyway, with our time, it's going to have to be enough just to say this. Taken together with his introductory remarks about carefully observing their objects, plural objects of worship, Paul shows the Athenians that they know what is right. They at least know a little bit about what is right. And they have compromised with their tolerance of God's made in the image of man and these temples for them to live in. In other words, they're sinners. (laughs) So Paul demonstrates that he knows his audience. But in addition to that, Here's the, here's the next one. He finds common ground to engage his audience. So here's what I mean by that. In verse 27 again, God made the nation so that they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God, we live, move, and exist. Here he's quoting a saying from this legendary poet of the 6th century BC in Crete, Epimenides. He, he, it's their saying. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. There he's quoting a guy named Eratus from the 3rd century BC, who's himself a Stoic. So he knows his audience, but even where he's finding common ground with them. He's saying, see, you agree with me on this. About God as giver of life, about man as God-derived and not the other way around. He's using their own culture's saying, sayings and literature about the nature of God. And he goes on in 29, Therefore, as God's offspring, as you've said, we have no need to imagine that the divine being is like a gold, silver, or stone image made by human skill and thought. God Here's the call to action. God overlooks ignorance of these things in times past, but now directs everyone everywhere to change their hearts and lives. Traditionally, that translates to repent. This is because God has set a day 
when he intends to judge the world justly by a man he has appointed. God has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He uses this common ground to engage his audience as he makes this call to action that you need to change your hearts and lives. You need to repent. God's resurrected chosen one, the Christ, is the just judge. He's the Lord. In this call to action, such was his Christ confidence, not self-confidence. And such was his Christ assurance, not self-assurance. That he really, he flips the script when it comes to who judges whom. Because even while it was the intention of this council to scrutinize or to judge his God that he's presenting to them, it's Paul's full intention to present to them a God who is their judge and everyone's and the perfect judge. So Paul had zeal for God and love for his neighbor that dictated his actions. He made the effort to know his audience and to find common ground with them, to engage them in this all-important call to action that is the gospel message. So here we have a few more verses. It's kind of an epilogue. And we see what the result was of his speech. When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, in verse 32, some began to ridicule Paul. However, others said, we'll, we'll hear from you about this again. At that, Paul left the council. Some people joined him and came to believe, including Dionysius, a member of the council on Mars Hill, a woman named Damaris, and several others. Okay, here's my one pastor-like effort to make all the words start with the same letter. (laughs) Some scoff, some stall, or at least scrutinize, but some see. Paul didn't expect a perfect result. Did everybody repent? No. But we can see that he expected this outcome. This is what Paul says about the cross of Christ in 1 Corinthians 1. He says it's foolishness to Jew and Greek alike. That is to say it's foolish to people of all backgrounds. And yet, to people of all backgrounds, it's the power and wisdom of God to those called by him to salvation. This year, will you make the gospel become your confidence? Like Paul, who's zeal for God and love for his neighbor is such that he couldn't stand wrong when he saw it. This year, isn't the good news that you bear good enough to compel you to speak the truth in love to your neighbor or coworker, that person you might think of who you see something is amiss. When you see them putting their hopes and pouring their life into the wrong things. Like Paul who took the inkling his audience already knew about God and revealed the full truth of God to them. This year, 
Isn't the good news that you bear ever going to be shared with that friend who has a dim and confused notion of God? A picture that might be fully and beautifully revealed to them by the gospel. And like Paul, who found common ground using what the culture had to say to engage them. This year is the good news that you bear worthy of us going the extra mile to find common ground with the co-worker or neighbor or person in your life to better engage them in the wonders of the love of Jesus Christ. Just how can we do that? How can we be like that? It's one thing to say, I'm going to do that. But how can we be like that? Uh, Nathan, you can come on up. Worship team, come on up. and um, Again, just how can we, as a vision for 2024, make the good news become our confidence? Let's start by, as the psalmist says, making the instruction of the Lord, the scriptures, become our delight. Meditate on, meditate on those scriptures day and night. Let's make the instruction of the Lord our delight. Let's pray without ceasing. And let's be on the alert, ready to resist the enemy and stand firm in the faith. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. And let's draw near to the throne of favor with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace when we need it. We have to remember that Paul, as brilliant and as scholarly as we know him to be, was given the words to say. He was confident because he had adopted the right attitude. He made a point to just keep Christ and his work central and left the rest up to the Holy Spirit to make the good news heard. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, my message and my preaching weren't presented with convincing wise words, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power. I did this so your faith might not depend on the wisdom of people, but on the power of God. The only necessary thing Paul did that we so often fail to do is adopt an attitude of Christ confidence. We can be confident in our good news only when our good news has become our confidence. I love the, uh, one of the lyrics to the new praise song we did at the beginning of service. I can't be quiet. My God is alive. How can I keep it inside? Can we be true to ourselves in that way? I can't be quiet. My God is alive. How can I keep it inside? I, I better wrap up. But with 2024, let's really start cultivating our confidence in Jesus Christ and his good news, which is our good news. And I, uh, I want to close by plainly proclaiming that good news, whether you've heard it a thousand times or have never heard it. 
because it is so good. God is there. He is not unknown. And he loves you to the point of death. As the man Jesus, he answered to his own perfect standard of justice. Because our wrongdoing, all of our wrongdoing, the ways we've all fallen short, that can't be ignored by a God who is good. And so he willingly died in our place when we deserved it. He defeated death itself when he rose from the grave, enabling us to do the same. If he's unknown to you, starting today, I'm telling you, he doesn't have to be anymore. His tender love reconciles us to him and we'll be in his loving presence forever as we are created to be when we own up to our sin before God. We turn from it. We put Jesus in his rightful place as the one who saves us and as the Lord of our lives. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father and Lord, let your good news that is our good news become our confidence in 2024. Amen.